I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Matilda, the musical, the movie. Do you want to hear about my first day at school? Yeah, I'd rather eat vegetables. It's official. I'm a genius. My losing streak is over. This fella comes into the lock. Huge he was. Great big pair of a man. And this bear of a man wants a luxury car. Oh, lovely. But the bear's dry. No, it's not a real bear. Do you have a luxury car? I've got two, boy. I'm a girl. One would have smashed in front and one would have smashed in back. All I've got to do is cut them in half, glue them together, and Bob's your chipmunk. Daddy's back. But isn't that illegal? And sort of, well, wrong? What did he say? This is the movie of the Tim Minchin musical of Matilda that's uh, enjoyed a lot of success on stage for many years now, since 2011. And that itself was an adaptation of the 1988 novel Matilda by Roald Dahl, which has already received one adaptation, the 1996 American film starring and produced by and narrated by Danny DeVito, disapproving of his own methods of child raising. And uh, starring the great Mara Wilson. And I read Matilda, I think in 1990, the first time I ever went on a plane with my father to America for a, a short trip, which became something that I was very privileged to be able to do in the 90s when I lived alone with him. He and my mother were just a few years away from separation and divorce, and a very, very difficult choice. Though I did come to see myself as being in a state of needing to escape. And this was one of the last Roald Dahl books I had left to read. I had read all the rest of them, starting when I was six and read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory on the plane to Disney World. To balance this out, I've been on vacation three times since the year 2000. Nope, four times. New York for a weekend, a honeymoon in Florence, Seattle for PAX in 2009, Disney World in 2017 with Willa. That's what happens when you cut ties with airline guy. You want to know what's weird? We're out there for the Thanksgiving game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Washington team, which I've got to say was one of the most boring experiences in my life, but everything around it was fantastic. I found Usagi Yojimbo for $4 at Toys R Us. That was never released in the UK. And you guys were floor to ceiling Ninja Turtles figures. We weren't even allowed to say Ninja Turtles. Had a half a onion loaf at Tony Roma's. It was the size of a torso. So I'm 10 years old, my little mind is spinning, and I'm finishing off the last few chapters of Matilda, one of the best books I've ever read. And while we're there, and I'm sat in my hotel room watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I'm thinking about going to Toys R Us for the first time in my life. Newsflash, Roald Dahl died. Just kind of staggering, the timing on that one. 23rd of November, 1990. So the Matilda book, in retrospect, on various levels, means a great deal to me. But I absolutely loved it, and I completely got the level of frustration there for a kid that feels like adults are betraying her. See, when I was a kid, I would devour books. It's hard to believe now because they make me sleepy, and I pivoted to movies. And around about the time I first saw Pulp Fiction in 1994 and started amassing a serious VHS collection. But in 1990, books all the way. I loved being at the library, I loved pulling down stacks, stacks to take home. And the premise of Matilda, for those not familiar with it, are a very smart little girl born into a family of 
rotten dumbasses. And if they were thick and loved her and each other, that's still a wonderful family. But they're mean and shitty. Her father rips people off for a living, selling dodgy cars, deliberately hiding their dodginess with little schemes. And they're vicious with her, and she's very much treated like Harry Potter, or rather, Harry Potter is very much treated like Matilda. So Matilda, from a very, very young age, has to look after herself, take herself off to the library, effectively educate herself as she devours books that are way beyond her reading grade. This is the initial setup, and Matilda acts out quietly, rebelliously, does little things to keep her safety valves on that surreptitiously torture her captors. Went up the hill to fetch a pail of water Sorry they say the subsequent fall was inevitable They never stood a chance, they were written that way Innocent victims of their story Like Romeo and Juliet T'was written in the stars before they even met That a love and fate and a touch of stupidity would warp them off Living happily, the endings are often a little bit gory. I wonder why they didn't just change their story. We're told we have to do what we're told, but surely. Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty. So when I finally saw the version that I was like, nah, I don't want to see that, it's Americanized. I think it was probably on Netflix or something. And 
It was fine. It was fine. Uh, much like Fantastic Mr. Fox, it had to, unlike usual uh, book adaptations, pare things away and just really focus on the important stuff for the plot. Both Matilda adaptations have had to add things on. Now, if it's 1996, you're still right smack bang in the middle of kid power, which is every film that has kids getting one over on adults, the adults get gunged, it's home alone. Only notably, Kevin McAllister was the only one who put together deadly, bone-breaking, face-smashing, feet-lacerating, electrocuting, heart-stopping, nail-in-the-foot death traps. Everything else was just sort of like, whoa, we fell off a thing! Again and again and again. And that's very much the modus operandi of the 96 Matilda. So that means that this version has to operate on a completely different level in order to differentiate itself and also to justify its existence as a film of a musical, of a film, of a book. I suppose in the same way that Les Miserables, directed by the director of Cats, Tom Hooper, uh, had to justify itself as a film of a musical that's already had a Liam Neeson film made of it. Experience over two and a half hours of CGI crane shots and extreme close-ups and the death of Russell Crowe's acting ability. I don't remember if the Liam Neeson uh, one from the late eight, uh, from the late nineties had singing in it. I don't think it did. I think it was just straight adaptation of Victor Hugo's 1862 novel. Though it was made at the time in 1998 because the Les Miserables musical was doing gangbusters on Broadway in the London stage. You see the distant flames, they bellow in the night. You fight in all our names for what we know is right. And when you all get shot and cannot carry on, though you die, la resistance lives on. I think Jeffrey Rush played Javert there. I don't know if he jumped pelvis first onto a fountain. The best bit in that film. Yeah. Is it unusual for stage musicals to get film adaptations within like 10 years? I think we're going to see the gap closing sooner and sooner. Mm. Uh, as we've been discussing on the uh, Discord, and I can't remember exactly where I said this, I think it was in Hamilton and the upcoming show we have on In the Heights. I think I'm going to wait till summer to put that one out. It's a very summery film. But there is an inherent classism to musical theatre. There's only a, people in a certain band of affluence can actually afford to go to London or New York and pay astronomic ticket prices. If you think I'm exaggerating, I just did some checking. The Cambridge Theatre in London is showing Matilda the Musical. Saturday, 27th of May at 7.30pm. Three tickets in the stalls, £420, folks. Meanwhile, the Matilda Musical Blu-ray is 9 99 And get this, you can watch it more than once. And also to stay overnight, because by and large, these things end at like 10 o'clock, 10.30, and you, you got to rush for your train. And if you're coming from a long, long way away, that train's not going to take you all the way back home. So there's that. But now, after COVID, it's actually straight up dangerous for Granny to go and see Matilda. She's immunocompromised. My mummy says I'm a miracle.
have a picture of our pumpkin from this angle over here. I know we wouldn't say this, but she's clearly cuter than her peer. What a dear. Ooh, honey, look at mommy. Try not to vomit on your brother. Now smile for mommy. Smile for mother. I think she blinked. But take another. Have you seen what he can do? Is that unusual for day two? He's smiling early, not a sign of an exceptional IQ. She's just delightful. So intuitive. So insightful. Might they be a little brighter than the norm? I know to say it's frightening. One thing I like is that uh, sometimes uh, cinemas do like our local Odeon does kind of like sort of live show broadcasts where you pay a high fee, but not anywhere near as high as the people who paid to be there. Correct. And you, and see you can see it locally. You don't yeah. have to pay the travel. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And then you go to your local cinema. That's great. But turning them into films, I've seen people say, what's the point of this? And they always point to the bad ones. But if it never happened... We'd never get Little Shop of Horrors. Look, you're a plant, an inanimate object. Does this look inanimate to you, punk? If I can talk and I can move, who's to say I can't do anything I want? Like what? Like deliver, pal. Ah! Like see you get everything your sacred, greasy, hot desires. Would you like a Cadillac car on a gas shot on jackpot? How about a date with Hedy Lamar? You know, we'd never get the Phantom of the Opera, which a lot of people hate, but I love it. Heights, and no, we'd never get Matilda, not in this way. This for every is, cat, there's a Grease. For every cat, there's also a Les Miserables, and from that we can learn, stop letting Tom Hooper direct these things. He's awful. <laughs> However, uh, Matilda is my second favourite film of 2022, after Everything Everywhere All at Once, which looks likely to remain my favourite film of the next decade. This is so my jam. Uh, for the uninitiated, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to be playing loads of music from the film. Like I said before, the story itself is about being very sensitive and having this massive churning brain in a place where that brain is not called for, and in fact you are discouraged and treated badly for being who you are. Now in the book, she also had an older brother who never really did anything, and it feels like they removed him from proceedings so that they could focus this family that just didn't want a kid and now they've got a kid they don't know what to do with that kid it feels like well you've got no excuse if this other kid's knocking around and you also feel sorry for this other kid who's going to be neglected mm, but yeah. the way Roald Dahl worked it was always I hate pretty much everything except this person mm, yeah I do quite like the way that was shaped because it goes from Roald Dahl had a particular knife out for horrible adults yes and Rightly so, but the portrayal of those horrible adults was sometimes really difficult to put a finger on what wasn't quite right about them, but it just, it felt spiteful sometimes. And I think what they've managed to do here is just shape them enough to be entirely unpleasant at the beginning of the film, 
but then gradually become just really unsuitable for Matilda. Mm. They're pitiful, mm. especially at the end. Indeed. Uh, like she's, she's not so much running rings around them, but there is... Her father's even worse to her in the book than he is here. I mean, he, here he's more negligent than he is abusive, but yeah. he's still... Like, they're actually really smart about how they balance it. All of his and his, the mother's abuse are done in a kind of cartoonish way, but it never detracts from how horrible this is for Matilda. It just softens the blow for the kids watching so they don't get too scared and upset. Yeah. And the other thing is they have got to be not a patch on the trunch ball. Yeah. Yeah. They've got to be awful, but sh- the trunch ball is a nightmare. Mm. Come to her in a bit. Uh, and But at the end, the, the parents just up and leave uh, because the father's done too many dodgy car deals and now there's some big men with knives are after them. If they stick around, then you're going to find this man's testicle underneath a distributor cap of a, of a Vauxhall Astra. But yeah, Dan the Daggerman from Dagenham is going to be uh, hunting him down and he'll be sleeping with the fishes in concrete underpants. But at the end, when it's been very clear that the parents are bullies, Mrs. Trunchbull is an astonishing bully. Matilda attends to the hat she glued to her father's head, unbeknownst to him. He never works it out, even though she hands it to him guiltily. He never pieces it together. And this is after she's given him Oompa Loompa hair to go with his orange tan. She takes it off using her psychic powers to will the glue off his forehead because she's kind of making amends. She's kind of not being a bully. And rather than just sticking two fingers up at them, there is a slight wistfulness of her sort of saying goodbye to these parents who could never be, which surprised me. They're played by Stephen Graham, who you will have seen. Most recently, he was in Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. He played the completely superfluous detective in that. Mm. See, I think I remember him from Snatch. Yes, he was in Snatch. Tommy, the tit. He was also in Pirates of the Caribbean's 4 and 5. I think his name was Scroop. And uh, Andrea Riseborough as Mrs. Wormwood. There's a big song and dance at the beginning about how every child is a miracle, which if you know Tim Minchin's act, you'll know how scathing he is of... Everything. Everything is a good way of putting (laughs) it. Um, He doesn't like drippiness, but he's very good at putting together music that will make you cry and even tell you he's manipulating you as he does it. Beauty is a harlot She will dance with any bastard She's undiscerning in her choice of partners I could have her, of course, if I wished But I object to her promiscuousness Beauty just doesn't suit me Know you were 
could swallow her whole But I'm not here to panda to souls For beauty is a siren Trying to draw me from my chosen He's also a a tiresome atheist whereby his philosophy is that everything quantifiable should be enough and that everything that we don't know about and dream about like ghosts and magic and spirituality is all just bullshit. And as an agnostic, I disagree because frankly, the stuff we don't know about and speculating about it is one of the most interesting things about being alive for Mm. me. I don't necessarily put enough stock in it to cause harm to anyone or myself but I don't like to wander around telling everybody that belief in anything that can't be held in your hands is bullshit but I do love so much of his music 
Perfect example is the school song, although this one is also commendable because the child actors and child singers give it 200%. They're fucking amazing. Now, this song repeats itself, and you realize the second time around, they've actually been giving you the ABC. And as the kids run Matilda and her new friend Lavender Brown through the school, there's lettering on the walls to go with every corresponding line in the song. It's magnificent. Oi, new kids! And so you think you're able to survive this mess by being a prince or a princess. You will soon see there's no escaping tragedy. And even if you put in heaps of effort, you're just wasting energy. Because your life as you know it is ancient history. You'll start learning, all right? Great! I already know the alphabet. You don't know the alphabet until we learn the alphabet. Alicia Weir plays Matilda, and what a find. What a find. She's like Daphne Keene levels of fantastic in this. I agree. She's absolutely superb. She, there's, there's something about... 
There's something about Matilda that never quite fit with Mara Wilson for me. And this is nothing against Mara Wilson. I think she's lovely. Who's gotten even better as she got older. Yeah, but there was... She was shaped into somebody a little bit too saccharine when she was Mm. of a certain age. And that was not her fault. But Matilda needs an edge. And her opening song effectively... sharpens that edge and shows it to mm. you. This feels like a riposte to Annie's Saying Oliver, It's like, no, 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 you gotta make the sun come out. Because as the pianist in Bugsy Malone said, Tomorrow, tomorrow never comes. What kind of a fool do they take me for? Though, just like Annie, Matilda does need help with this. Also, the school song. It's the hard knock life for us. It's the hard knock life for us. Stand up every day. We get tricks. Standing says we get tricks. It's the hard knock life. I wasn't exactly stony faced through the opening number. did feel a little bit twee and I was kind of like is this being purposefully twee or is this is it is it going to carry this tone through and there was just something about the way she says for the first time you've got to be a little bit bit naughty naughty. (laughs) and the way she smiles just kind of hearts melted We're told we have to do what we're told, but surely Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty Which, in conjunction with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, also released on Netflix, means Netflix are backing our anti-fascist uprising. These are parables about the virtue of disobedience as a means of holding on to our souls and our basic freedom and protecting one another from tyranny. Now, I don't for one second think that that's actually Netflix's intention, but because they greenlight the more out here projects, that's where these songs find their voices. Hell, the Bruce Bogtrotter scene, where a boy is force-fed cake, transforms into the entire school rallying him on to beat this despicable jailer by achieving the impossible and eating a chocolate cake the size of a boy.
adorable, but not sickly. And she's convincing in terms of someone who reads all the time. So mm. she, her best friend is Miss um, Phelps, played by Sindhu V, who runs a local library van that apparently only Matilda visits, uh, visits <laughs> and gobbles up all of these books. Mm. The only bit I call bullshit on uh, is uh, when Matilda says, I read all of these books this week. Is maths your favourite thing? It's okay, but what I really like is reading. It's like a holiday in your head. Do you do that a lot? Get away from everything? In books, I mean. Oh yeah, I read loads this week. Loads? In one week? <laughs> so, which books did you read this week? Nicholas Nickleby, Jane Eyre, Tessa the D'Urbervilles, Of Mice and Men, The Lord of the Rings, Moby Dick, Crime and Punishment, and... The Cat in the Hat. I took all summer of 2001 to read that. It's enormous. And after all that effort, Mike Myers gave a disappointingly overblown performance as the Cat in the Hat. <laughs> this one is disgusting. Why is it the prosthetic faces? Why? I know. Why? I know. Why? Brazil! <laughs> Dude, nope. Yes! This is the brood, man. We're in a brood yeah. central. Reading that many dense, classic books in a week is disturbing. Take your time. You Just because you can assimilate all the data that fast doesn't mean you should. That's an absurd amount of pages to turn within a week. Space it out. This is gorging. Some of the finest literary meals ever prepared. It's a famine mentality, like she feels these things are going to be taken away from her, which itself is characterising. That's, yeah, that's true. I mean, speaking as somebody who does read that fast or did used to read that fast, it's... I then question you on the books and you go, I don't know. And I say, that's yeah, because no, no, you no. skim read everything. Well, exactly. But that's the thing. When your brain is in a certain sponge-like mode, you have to take things in as fast mm -hmm. as possible. Otherwise, it gets bored and wanders off. Yeah, I think we've just figured out why I don't read that much because I have to pay that much yeah. attention the so, whole time. And it drives me nuts because I'm like, I've read that line five times. Yeah. But, the, but then when something catches your attention, you go back and you read it again. And it's that layering... Mm that then builds up the familiarity and the knowledge and the, the real understanding of mm. it. The important books are not the ones that you read quickly once and then you're done with. Like it's Lord of the, the Rings. ones you keep going back to. Most people who love Lord of the Rings will tell you they keep going back to it. I know, I know, I know. So I think that bears out. I think they just mentioned theory. Lord of the Rings because kids would be like, oh, bloody hell, that thing's yeah. massive. <laughs> yeah, doorstop style book. Mm. Bearing in mind at this point she's not at school, so she has literally all day, and I'm willing to bet, all night with a flashlight mm. to just read and read and read and read and read. That's true. Lashana Lynch plays Miss Honey. She was Maria Rambo in Captain Marvel. She was in The Woman King, one of the other best films of the year. And uh, she was in No Time to Die as Nomi, otherwise known as 007, the other one. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you in your kneecap. The one that works. <laughs> She's got such an amazing range. The hook she got us with for uh, Miss Honey is a sense of real compassion for these children almost immediately. Like she appeals to Matilda uh, by talking about literature and her class being fun. But then when she comes in and they're all sort of sitting down to class, there's a giant lengthy Goodwill hunting sum on the blackboard. And one of the kids is like, it's hurting my brain. And I'm like, wow, this kid's somewhat intimidated by numbers, but that means something. And 
Miss Honey comes and just calms him down in, in the way that we would all love to be calmed down from a panic attack. Miss? Hmm? It's hurting my head. Oh, no, Nigel, that's not for you. Uh, they used this classroom for grown-up lessons at night. They must have left it up there. Nigel? 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 And she just gently lays her fingers on his hands and stays with him to bring him down. But then immediately changes the subject on the class so that Nigel doesn't feel embarrassed. Now, who would like to polish your foots on the board? <laughs> Which is a lovely little touch, and it gets us to trust her immediately. But then when she sings several times in this, and when we see her sense of conflict and inability to answer back to a certain massive villain, as well as with Matilda's overarching story narrative, which we'll come back to, you start to realise that this may be called Matilda, but it's actually a story about both of them. Very much about both of them escaping captivity mm, with each other. I, I would say as well that the tone of how it plays out, this is almost a love story about the two of them mm. finding the right person to be their child and be their parent. Yeah. Yeah, I completely get that whole uh, the the idea of a love story. Like it, it's 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 not romantic love, but it is almost more considered, almost like less biologically driven, and almost more of an awareness on some kind of spiritual level, which I know Tim Minchin would hate. That someone standing directly in front of you actually does make your life feel like it's moved up to another dimension. Mm. Yeah, this is a woman for whom both parents were murdered. And she grew up trapped in despicable abuse, but has held on to that sense of love and nurturing and care more fiercely for those trapped within what feels like an inescapable, dire situation. This roof keeps me dry when the rain falls. This door helps to keep the cold at bay. On this floor I can stand on my own two feet. On this chair I can write my lessons On this pillow I can dream my nights away On this table, as you can see Well, it's perfect for tea It isn't much, but it is enough for me It isn't much, but it is enough these walls I hang wonderful pictures Through this window I can watch the seasons change By this lamp I can read And I am set free And when it's cold outside I feel no fear Even in the winter storms I am warmed by a small Stubborn fire, and there is nowhere I would rather be. It isn't much, 
But it is enough for me For this is my house This is my house It isn't much, but it is enough for me songs are clever uh, and it's uh, you know uh, we've gotten used to Lin-Manuel Miranda being this insane wordsmith over the past few years but watching the A to Z school song was just a joy these kids making sounding out these letters as they run through the school the labyrinthine school it is captivating as a musical and as you watch it as well there are times when I'm like I can imagine this on stage and yet it being on film doesn't diminish that. It's a very stagey filmed musical, but it, within the Roald Dahl context, it all, all also kind of operates on a, on a slightly stylized fashion energy as well. Mm, and they really make the most of the fact that in a school context, you have these big open spaces that you can do the big dance numbers, mm. the dining room, the playground, the roof at one point. <laughs> An assault course. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, that roof bit had a very much My House, My Rules from the end of uh, Knives Out. Totally did. To it, yeah. Yeah. Watching it the second time, I wished they'd included one line where Miss Honey argues with the school director truancy officer that comes around to assess Matilda's family because Matilda hasn't been showing up at school and they're like, why has this not happened? And ultimately it comes down to the family don't know, don't care, and then get angry when they get fined for it. I feel like Miss Honey should have campaigned hard to send Matilda somewhere else. Looked at this child and thought, no. My adopted guardian will destroy this child. Everything good about this kid is going to be flattened. They've, she's got to go somewhere else, mm. and it doesn't happen. It doesn't, and it, it is peculiar that Miss Honey does not seem to know at this stage how bad Miss Trunchbull can be. Because she actually goes to her to begin with, if you if you remember, and yeah. says... I think this child is gifted. ...attempts to get Matilda oh, some I kind remember. of additional 
support. Yeah. And surely she would know by now that, that she is absolutely shouting down an empty well. I don't think she's actually tried to ask her for anything in during the tenure of her being a teacher. Mm. And ultimately, Matilda is clearly gifted enough that if asked to demonstrate, she could. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean... That she just hasn't had a child yeah. that she thinks, you are beyond my ability to to encourage, we need more for you. Again, it operates in a somewhat cartoonish reality, but it gives us a chance for Miss Honey to make a request that every single member of the audience is like, this is a perfectly natural, normal request to ask from a human being, and oh, what is that thing? Mm -hmm. Because as you meet Miss Trunchbull, it's Emma Thompson, whom I adore, playing the worst person in the world. <laughs> uh, she's out of focus in those first few shots, and she looks like either a robot scanning these... Yeah, Terminator. A Terminator. She's got, like, shining eyes, and her head is just bobbing left and right as she scans the monitors uh, watching what's happening in the school. Or the creature doing performing the same function in Toy Story 3, that fucking monkey with the symbols. Miss Trunchbull is maybe the most odious... Like I said, the worst person ever. Roald Dahl created some villains in his time. Boggis Bunsen Bean. The twits. You're sitting in your old chair and you've shrunk so much your feet aren't even touching the ground. I can't bear it! Grandma from George's Marvelous Medicine. I gave up Graham when I was extremely small. Along with all the other nasty childish habits, like laziness and disobedience and greed and sloppiness and untidiness and stupidity. You haven't given up any of those things, have you? Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker from James and the Giant Peach. Look at him, lollygagging in dreamland, when there's so much work to do. Weeds to pull, wood to chop. Work, 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 work! I would include all of the parents from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but they they pale in comparison to how loathsome these characters are. Mm. Oh, and the Grand High Witch. Child Hitler. Every child in England shall be rubbed out, destroyed. Every single child eliminated. <sighs> Okay, maybe the Grand High Witch is worse because she straight up wants to murder all the children. Mm. Although, it certainly would, wouldn't be on uh, Trunchbull's no-no list because she's like, imagine a world without children. And she starts fantasizing about children of men, only the world is populated by horses. And I'm like, you are off the deep end, lady. That was... Uh, uh, okay. So creepy. That was so creepy. But also, I love the fact that it just a hair's breadth Humanizes, humanizes her. her, yeah, and that makes her more terrible mm. because it's like she does. There's a have shred this, of something in there. Yeah, she that does she have this ideal world, but she's decided the only way that she can feel even a semblance of that ideal mm. world is by stepping on other people. Yeah. This school of late has started reeking. Quiet, maggot. When I'm speaking, reeking with the most disturbing scent. Only the finest nostrils smell it, but I know it oh, too well. It is the odour of rebellion, it's the bouquet of dissent. And you may bet your britches this headmistress finds this foul odoriousness wholly olfactorily insulting. 
and sell to stop the stingy spread, I find a session of physic. Sorts the merely rank from the revolting. Come along, squits. I'll take it from here, Jenny. The smell of rebellion comes out in the sweat. And Fizz Ed will get you sweating. And it won't be long before I smell the pong of aiding and abetting. Before a weed becomes too big and greedy, you really need to nip it in the bottom. Before the work starts to turn, you must scrape off the dirt and rip it from the mud. A whiff of insurgence, the stench of intent, the reek of a pong of defiance, the odour of coup, the waft of anarchy in progress. Once we've exercised these demons, they shall be too pooped for scheming. Some double-time discipline should stop the rot from setting in. Discipline, discipline for children who aren't listening, for fiddlers who are fidgeting and whispering in history. They're chattering and chittering, they're nattering and twittering. His temper with a smattering of discipline. We must begin insisting on rigidity and discipline, persistently resisting this anarchistic mischief in these minutes. You are frittering on pandering and pitying on little ones like this. And like I said, Emma Thompson, I kind of want to see Trunchbull versus Nanny McPhee because they both would come at it from a position of I want to smash these children and, and crush these maggots versus I want to save these children, but with strictness and uh, lessons being learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Thompson's always been a fantastic actress, but she is transformed in this. A costume note. This is very personal, and I don't even know if Sharon will have seen this. Miss Trunchbull's outfit looks like it was made from a coat I own. The Aragorn coat that I bought many, many years ago. Oh my god. It had to come from America and it got hit by UK Customs so it it cost a lot. It cost a lot to import and then UK Customs smacked me with a fine so high that I was like, I can't believe I paid that much for a fucking coat. And it's an extra large and I'm a large. And I was thinking, if I make it extra large I can get married in this thing and keep like everything underneath that Aragorn wears without getting it being too tight. I didn't think to myself, make sure it's a large, Alex. You're a large. You're not an extra large. And so the thing kind of hangs slightly on my left shoulder or hangs slightly on my right shoulder. It's a beautiful licorice green coat. But I saw the material type. I saw the tiny mottled dark greenish colouring, but with that, that slight frosting around the edges, sort of a slight beige, and and, the, and the, the seams on this thing, and it had like a crisscross laces at the back, I would not at all be surprised. In fact, I would go, yes, vindicate it! If I found out that the costume designer, Rob Howell, who was part of the art department for Eddie Izzard's Glorious. How appropriate. Beekeepers as well. Beekeepers, yes. Beekeepers, they've got to want to be. I want to be a beekeeper. I want to keep bees. I, want, I don't want them to get away. I want to keep them. They have too much freedom. I want bees on elastic so when they get pollen, they come back here. 
Wow. He's pretty much first time. He's only ever been costume designer for the Metropolitan Opera HD Live in 2010 through 2014. Production designer for the same business and art department on Glorious. That's it. Wow. How can you be so unpracticed and yet just come out swinging for the seats in the upper circle? My guess is simply plenty of work on productions that don't turn up on the IMDb. Each outfit perfectly sums up these characters. The repugnant used car salesman. From the sounds of it, he's a welder trying his luck at being a used car salesman of Mr. Wormwood, Matilda's dad. And just this awful, like, when Matilda comes home and she's talking to her mum about her first day of school and her mum does not want to know and she's doing aerobics or sort of like stretching on a chair, I was like, that's the sister in Leon to Matilda in Leon, the family that doesn't care about her. But yeah, Miss Trunchbull is, has got this kind of army-looking green coat all strapped up and tied on and belted, and she's got everything she needs, like this this horrible pack hanging off her that sort of attaches to a little radio thingy that attaches to a talkie device and what appears to be some sort of wooden cosh to bash kids' heads in with. Mm. And she's, like, super uptight. Her hair's super uptight. She's got this face carved out of granite but it's at the same time still wattled and disgusting with a single long curly hair on the chin that you just want to go Doink! off <laughs> and she's got these massive frankenstein's hand-me-down boots so she's stomping all over the place but the way she holds herself is the imposing thing as terrifying as she is outside nothing compares to how frightening she is on the inside how deeply ugly a sensibility she holds. As I was saying to Sharon, I, I couldn't sleep the other night, and so I started sorting all the Disney uh, Broadway musicals songs into types. So it was like the I Want song. There was a long list of them. The fun song, where it's like, be our guest, be our guest, the thing that makes you feel like each Disney movie is a party. Then there's occasional songs, not for every film, that just floor you, like there was one in Moana that does that. The big, rousing climax where everything converges and a new emotional state of being is reached. But the villain songs, the last villain song we got was in Moana and it was Shiny, uh, sung by Jermaine Clement, A Giant Crab. Before that, Dr. Facilier's I Got Friends on the Other Side in 2008 for The Princess and the Frog. And before that, I think it's Hellfire by Judge Claude Frollo from 1996's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Gothel. Oh, yep. Gothel knows best. Mother knows best, yeah. What an amazing song. No, that was absolutely on the uh, list. I just completely forgot about it. Maybe just Gothel did the best evil villain song And they went, so we well. can't possibly top that, drops Mike. It's because of the reprise. When she does it, it's so threatening that you're like, we are in the end game now, you and I, Gothel. Only one of us is walking out of this tower. But it's something that we've all been missing, I think, from Disney films. So like when Frozen happened, none of us really noticed that the villain didn't have a song because there were so many great ones because we had two heroes, both of who sang. Mm. Or heroines, if you wish. Yeah. Uh, Technically, the villain does, yeah, have, a does song, have a song. But yeah, it's but also yeah. the hero song. Yeah, it's, uh, Frozen nicely blurs the line there. Yeah. But there's no villain song in Frozen 2, my goodness. And I feel like that's something that we've lost. Trunchbull brings it back with, I think, three songs 
throughout this thing. And she's just sort of singing about how much she loves order, and it's really camp, but she's terrifying. It's She's kind of like Audrey too in that uh, regard. Mm, like, yeah. she's great fun, but you know she'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be on your guard for that. Yeah. Um, one thing, I do, you're talking about the costume and costumes generally. One thing I noticed that I really loved is how everybody's outfit fits their environment. Trunchbull's clothes are perfectly suited for the jail-like interior of the school. Yeah. Matilda's parents' clothes mesh with the garish, over-the-top decor in their house. Notably, Miss- the school, uh, the uh, uh, the kids in their grey blazers, they look like they're kind of in a camp, an internment camp of something, maybe more so even than a prison. But at the end, when it's summer, they're all wearing those blue checkered dresses. Miss Honey's outfits uh, don't fit with the school, but they do fit with her house. And Matilda never really gets a costume that fits anywhere that she is. She looks like she's slightly out of place everywhere mm. until the end. Yeah. It's also subtly set in the 80s. If you keep an eye out, you'll notice little things that make it, oh yeah, that's the 80s. There's Corona Lemonade at one point. Mm. I saw that. The old style rapper for Curly Whirly. The Curly Whirly. I did notice the Curly Whirly, yes, yeah. And just a couple of other things that make you go, oh, so it's the 80s, but they never really have to hammer that home, mm. which obviously would make it feel more like, well, this is 1988. This yeah. is the year that Matilda came out. I do feel like younger people would notice it more because there is a significant absence of technology. Yes. It's an analogue film, most definitely. Matilda yeah. is not reading books on her phone. No. <laughs> no, she's not. And nobody is communicating by mobile. Nobody even has a pager. Yeah. But it, it kind of needs it because uh, the theatrics that she pulls off at the end would be convincing in the eighties. Less so now because we've all been we've all seen so much stuff in movies mm. and so much stuff on YouTube and so many stunts in real life that we'd be inclined to go. Well, that's not real, obviously. Yeah. I also think there is a little bit of it's nostalgia for the eighties, but not. Like people usually mean when they say mm. that, the the, uh, the cultural artefacts of the 80s, which are, have been nostalgia to death, yeah. um, but a nostalgia for an analogue world, a, mm. a slight wish that we could potentially step sideways for a bit and, and walk away from the, the constant mm. demands of digital technology. The thing that surprised me the most of all of it was... This is not a film about a kid who is exceptional and all the other kids are just sort of like dull-eyed cow kids. This, going against uh, a lot of uh, Roald Dahl-style writing, doesn't necessarily say Matilda was better than everyone else. It, in fact, has the kids back each other up again and again and eventually unite as a revolting force of children. Mm. It's about being disobedient. It's about refusing to accept the incredibly unfair strictures you're being subjected to. It's about speaking truth to power and telling the cheaters that they're cheating and that they need to fuck off. Yeah, and I I really, really did like the fact that all the kids have their own spark. Matilda's just happens to be reading a lot and being very, very smart, but that doesn't mean that she is sort of isolated amongst her peers. She is able to connect with them on a level that you wouldn't necessarily expect if all the focus was on her. Yeah. 
What this movie, what this production understands is that there's actually three kinds of people in the audience. There's the adults, there's the children, and then there's the child version of the adults sitting there beside us. Yeah, ultimately, the when Trunchbull is being 
beastly to absolutely everyone. It's not just Matilda she's uh, singling out or, or just sort of like being absolutely horrible to Bruce Bogtrotter and forcing him to eat an enormous chocolate cake, mm. which is, I, I love the way that they turn every memorable scene into a big song and dance number and just everything is pumped with energy. It's toe-tapping fun, folks. Mm. It's so apparent that every single child here has either been injured by Miss Trunchbull or is afraid of being injured by Miss Trunchbull. She will throw you. She will throw you like a hammer. Mm -hmm. The loudest, most pessimistic girl is wearing a beret in revolutionary red and various badges that make her look punky. But she's also nursing a broken arm, which she keeps in a cast. But if her spirit is as broken as her body, why is she still wearing the beret? Why isn't she falling into line? I love this contradiction. And another thing that they added, uh, in, not so much to pad out the film, but to again make it something that twins Matilda and Miss Honey as both trying to escape. And also specifically, it's not just Matilda doing everything concerted and standing up to bullies. Miss Honey is absolutely key in this, specifically for one moment at the end. Matilda starts writing a story in her head almost immediately after meeting Miss Honey about uh, an escapologist and a acrobat. And she tells it to the mobile librarian, uh, Miss, Mrs. Phelps, who gets really into it and is just like... She's the kind of librarian that you would love as a kid who reads books all the time, who always wants to encourage you, doesn't patronise you, and whom you kind of push to the point of, OK, I am going home now, child. Leave my library. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, and she weaves this story, which, as it turns out, appears to be actually Miss Honey's parents' experiences. So somehow Matilda is drawing out of Miss Honey's head using a, a heretofore undisclosed Jean Grey-style mind-reading ability to write her story. And in that scenario it gives Matilda a very personal reason to take on Trunchbull in that specific way in the end. In the book, Roald Dahl introduces that uh, Matilda has TK powers in, like, Act 3, pretty far along. Oh, it's going to be pretty hard to get rid of Miss Trunchbull. Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently she has telekinesis now, which she didn't have before, but now she does. It's almost like, uh, you know, when a writer just sort of writes a book, starts with a good idea, and then just writes and sees what happens, and then thinks of the ending while they're going along. Mm. I could never do that, yeah. because I have to start with a, this is where we're leading. Mm. Well, this is what this story is about. There is a definite difference between how that whole thing's presented in the book. Matilda gets the idea that she could develop these powers and practices and practices and practices until she can do it. Well, if she doesn't and keep practicing, she'll be a Mary Sue. So luckily there's a bit of hat play later on Well, no, but to but prove that she way, can do fine-tuned TK. The way it comes about in this, one of the other kids seeds it by mentioning it to her. Mm. And then when it happens... Which is neat because it explains that to the kids watching. So yeah, they're like, oh yeah, telekinesis, we all on. know it's about totally this. It's totally Matilda. Yeah, we understand. Um, but then when it, it happens the first time... And, and the second time, in fact, it is an outburst of anger yeah. rather than it being something that she's really tried to do. And she recognises it because one of the other kids has mentioned it. I, it. I also think they do manage to frame the telekinesis 
and the telepathic powers of of receiving Miss Honey's story because that's the other thing Matilda doesn't doesn't understand that that's what's happening mm. it's just she thinks she's just head. coming up yeah. with it so and that by turn makes Matilda seem a bit younger she's not fully in control of all of this stuff mm. it is something that's just happening to her and the people around her are what helps her to harness it mm. but the fact that both of them she describes as fizzing the uh, the TK and the TP she needs telepathy for her bunghole. <laughs> so it would appear. Um, but it, it does really make it feel like those two abilities are two sides of the same coin. And the other thing that I did kind of like, which always pissed me off about the book, was that Roald Dahl ties it up neatly by saying that because Matilda doesn't need to have the telekinesis anymore, or because Miss Honey is now providing her with enough intellectual stimulation that her brain has something to do, her powers just go away. And while you don't see her use them after the fact, there's no specific, they're gone now. Hmm. That's not going to happen again. Sequel? (laughs) (laughs) No, but the thing I said to you, do you remember what I said uh, as I I, I got out and sent you a message and said, uh, we're going to be doing a show on Matilda you definitely have to see it this is the anti-carry oh yes of course I do not use those words lightly we have seen in the past few years we've sat down and watched a whole bunch of films where a young girl often with red hair develops telekinetic powers goes absolutely ballistic kills her classmates and yeah just basically uses them to murder people she may break necks she may set things on fire the evil government agents uh, hunting her down all die horribly and uh, in the in the case of Carrie she murders her whole fucking school or she at least she tries to for the dreadful crime of being bullied horribly and embarrassed yeah well she's she's lashing out but the side effect is that most of the people at the school get killed yeah it's a horrendous scene this sh- by the end has matilda unleashing devastating power pulling together a giant chain mannequin with this beautiful top hat that tells us exactly that it is indeed Magnus this circus escapologist this giant mysterio creation the iron golem to take on oh it's just occurred to me that miss honey wouldn't necessarily have known what her father's costume looked like mm-hmm. so matilda could have got those images from the Trunchbull. Maybe so. It seems to be fairly accurate because uh, Trunchbull believes on some level that this is indeed the wrathful phantom of Magnus, whom she killed in order to obtain his house yes. and then obtain a an ungrateful stepdaughter whom she treats horrendously and also presents a bill with uh, the uh, as she reaches adulthood for every single tea bag and every single scrap of food telling you that you you were a burden to this much money well yeah for I, their I, entire life. I really like how that first off it shows the 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 real miserliness of bean counting everything that somebody might owe you right. and keeping track of everything and it's the absolute antithesis of unconditional love it's conditional it's, it's not so even love condition- it's like you you owe me for things that a parent should do hmm. i take care of my kids you're supposed to be a dumb motherfucker what are you talking about there's this thing about there's this saying about how you can never pay back 
a loving parent and you're not supposed to. You're supposed to pay it forward. You repay that by being loving to your children. Or to other people. Mm. You don't necessarily have to have children to just be a decent person. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like generational socialism. Ah. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> you got to watch out for those sponging kids. Unconditional and... love is the ultimate socialism. We can't have that. <laughs> those kids are going to try and take something for nothing, so you've got to give them a bill. Absolutely. Like a good hotel owner. Mm. Uh, it's this terrifying show of power as the Trunchbull pulls out this arcade of chokies these little homemade iron maidens that she's created to put children in mm. and again it being in the 80s you're like well it was the 80s you're allowed to be absolutely horrendous to kids in those days in britain they passed that law you know you're not allowed to physically educate your child anymore <laughs> and i found it was rather saddened i used to bound home from work to strike my children but um <laughs> There are only so many different ways you can say to a child, please don't turn the light switch on and off again. <laughs> you have absolutely nailed down the principal finding of this experiment. When you turn it off, daddy can't see anything. He stands on your toys trying to find you and kill you and breaks his foot. I do like the fact that they have this constant threat of the chokey, but nobody ever actually goes in it. Too upsetting. Too upsetting. <laughs> Absolutely. I also like that the point, uh, at one point Matilda runs to the actual chokey in the rain, which looks like an outhouse surrounded by um, World War I iconography and mm. barbed wire and rust and padlocks. And she destroys it, but it's off camera. Like, we've seen so many times a big thing explode on CG, and it's like, you know what? It's actually better that we didn't see that. Yeah. That was a neat touch. But that, well restrained. It, it sort of contributes to the feeling that, as you say, unlike Carrie and her ilk, Matilda is shown She picks as... her target very specifically. Exactly, and it's, it's not necessarily... It's not even making the point about control, but it's the combination of what she's able to do. It's not just about show of force. What devastates Miss Trunchbull is not, oh my God, all these chains are going to fall on my head and I'll die. It's the writing on the blackboard that says, this is Magnus come to get you, and the shape like you got me. that makes her realise that this potentially is, is really him. Mm. And... Yeah, all right. The the final thing is that she picks her up and throws her, but she catches her before she actually hits the ground. It is all about the uh, this having this amazing potential force, but having control of it, and and we don't get that. It's almost like all of those stories about women who have these devastating powers and, oh, my God, they can't possibly be allowed to continue because look what they can do when they're pissed off. Well, you know, you could try not pissing them off. Who's to say what will piss these women off? Well, you seem to have been doing it quite effectively for the last 90 minutes, so maybe you should stop. Who's to say? <laughs> Light, and we're holding a light 
that light would still travel away from us at the full speed of light seems right in a way but i'm trying to say i'm not sure but i wonder if inside my head i'm just a bit different from some of my friends these answers that come into my mind and bidden these stories delivered to me fully written and when everyone shouts like they seem to like shouting the noise in my head is incredibly loud and i just wish they'd stop my dad and my mum and the telly stop for just once and I'm sorry I'm not quite explaining it right this noise becomes anger and the anger is light and it's burning inside me would usually fade but it isn't today and the heat and the shouting and my heart is pounding and my eyes are burning suddenly everything everything There is a mild reading of trans allegory here, insofar as Matilda's father keeps calling her a boy, and she has to keep reaffirming herself as a girl, but he's the only one, and it seems less malevolent and more just forgetfulness. This isn't gaslighting, this is moron. Yeah, it, it does sort of have that feeling that everything about Matilda's existence is having to assert who she is mm. to people who will not recognise who she is, and her gender is folded into that as well. Yeah. Uh, but I love the fact that at the end, when her parents come to pick her up just because they're on the way to the airport so that they don't get stabbed, 
it's not Matilda who says, no, I'm not coming with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matilda ultimately is still bound by them and she's still a kid. And she's like, well, I've got to go with them. They say they, they have to and I have to leave all of this behind. It's Miss Honey who opens the door for her and says, no, you don't have to. Yeah. May I it, look after Matilda, please? It makes it about a positive choice. It's not about I am leaving my parents. It's about I am going to Miss Honey. And that's where they have this lovely exchange where... They, they sort of have an I do moment. It twins itself with what we would assume romantic love stories do. Mm. But, but it's about choice. It's about choosing this person that you found who is right mm. for you to, to be with. But also uh, using their individual powers that the others lack, telekinesis and the seniority of adulthood and authority, mm. uh, they are able to get rid of each other's abusive parents. Yes, and just clear the decks so that they can finally be in a, p- a place of quiet mm. with each other. Yeah. It's wonderful. Absolutely. The fact that what Miss Honey offers Matilda, although she's offering it to her parents, is that I will look after her with, I think she says, love and kindness and respect. And that's something that she's already said children should have in their classroom in their in their life generally and been told in no uncertain terms no that i think is is miss honey's strength that despite everything that's gone on around her despite every external force trying to squeeze her into what trunchbull says at the beginning toe the line stay in the circle do the rules for Miss Honey, it's she's decided what her rules are going to be and her values are going to be, and that's what she sticks to. In spite of everything else, that is what she holds on to and, and carries. And it almost makes me feel as though I, I have no doubt that the reason she's teaching at this school is because the Trunchbull will not let her teach anywhere else. She's like, fine, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be here where I can keep an eye on you. But at the same time, there's almost like these little seeds of defiance, like, okay, but I will teach these children with a semblance of kindness if I can hide it from you. Mm. And I almost feel like that little house she has in the forest. Her shed. I don't think the Trunchbull knows where that is. Mm. I think that's something that she's kept secret. She goes into school every day, so she sees her, and she knows that she's got hold of the end of the rope. But the house is something that she can go back to and be completely free of her and not have to worry that she's going to come knocking on the door. That song, the little song she sings in the uh, beginning of the third act about this is my house, my little place that's it's it's not much, but it's good enough for me. Uh, it's, it's not perfect, but it's mine. Another Tim Minchin song, which always makes Sharon cry. I'm not crying. Sharon's crying. This is my earth. It's one-third dirt and two-thirds water And it rotates and revolves through space A rather an impressive pace That never even messes up my hair And here's a really weird thing The force created by its skin Is the force that stops the chaos flooding in This is my earth And it's fine It's where I spend the vast majority of my time in 
Sure, 
This is the only instance I will ever accept the term, it's not perfect, but. Everyone else, I'll be checking your workings out. It's also filled with uh, little tiny visual and verbal references to uh, pretty much every Roald Dahl book. This is reaching, but there's a seagull at the beginning on top of the roof, which obviously there were loads of seagulls in James the Giant Peach. Miss Honey gets referred to as she's too peachy as well. The hot air balloon in Matilda's quiet song visually evokes the peach floating above the clouds. I'm not sure what the names of the brands of the per- her mother's peroxide and her father's hair tonic were, but if I was going to put any name brands on them, it would be the brands from George's Marvelous Medicine, where they go to the bathroom cabinet and they... It was rather than just some hair oil, it was always describing very specifically what kind of hair oil it was. Obviously, the whole thing starts with a Wonka bar, which almost made me think, oh, shit, are they doing like a a Wonka cinematic universe? Because it wouldn't be too bad if it it had these these folks overseeing it. It did have something of the feel of the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka. The the school gets renamed at the end the Big Friendly School. There's a giraffe being fed leaves uh, by the kids in the upper halls of the school, much like the giraffe, the Pelly and me. Still waiting for word on whether this is a geranius giraffe or not. Uh, That song mentions revolting rhymes. Of course, yeah. The word, the revolting rhymes is one of the revolting rhymes of the last song about revolting. Uh, I don't remember anyone saying dirty beasts at any type, Uh, but the wooden vintage caravan that Matilda and Miss Honey end up uh, lying on top of finally free is Danny the champion of the world. Also, when that kid with the pigtails gets thrown into a bush, three pheasants jump out of it. Again, Danny (laughs) champion of the world. What are we forgetting? Which ones? The witches. The witches is the only one I can think of that, that, that has no specific reference in there the i think when uh, matilda sings song uh, a song about seeing red that might actually uh, refer to the magic finger which is kind of like a prototype matilda, matilda. yeah my guess is there's stuff in uh, miss honey's pictures that she's got on the walls and luckily since uh, it's much like um moving on from lovecraft really great creators like uh Guillermo del Toro and Clive Barker can do Lovecraft without the anchor of Lovecraft weighing them down. Uh, We can do Matilda without the uh, anti-Israeli comments, use of racial stereotypes and misogyny of Roald Dahl that's just on his Wikipedia page right here. Again, though, if you read between the lines in his text, he doesn't seem to like people in general. He's kind of misanthropic in that way and seems to think that kids are all disgusting little monsters as well, except for good kids like Matilda, Charlie Bucket. Which is why I think there is great value in the film not saying that. Bingo. And the film actually saying that all these kids are in it together. The image of kids pulling down a statue of a Thatcher-like, iron-fisted leader in the 80s and just toppling it. It is absolutely the imagery we need to be giving them now these days. Do not put up with these fucking cheats. Yeah. 
And I'd call them on their shit and tear down their statues. I really liked the conceit of the the last song that we are revolting children, these are revolting times. We have to meet what this time in our lives demands of us. Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, T. 
Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. I think, as far as I can tell, the only Roald Dahl uh, films that come close to this in terms of quality and just getting everything, extracting everything from the book that could possibly be good and adding some of their own are uh, Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox, which goes way further than the pamphlet of a novelette, mm -hmm. and the Nick Rogue version of The Witches, the original version. We are, we're going to do a show where we compare the Rogue version with the Zemeckis version, which was a fucking disaster and came out more recently. We'll talk about that when we get to The Witches. But uh, I want Victoria in on that one, because like, oof, witchy stuff and Victoria go together quite well. <laughs> And we've had this organized for a while. We're also going to do a comparative of the Johnny Depp and Tim Burton version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, because it's worth talking about those two. And we've already done the BFG, which I think actually is way up there as well. I was going to say, what about the BFG? Because yeah. I know you really liked that one. Yeah, did. I know Sharon still loves the Cosgrove Hall version of the BFG, the animated one voiced by David Jason. Oh, and the James and the Giant Peach directed by Henry Selleck, director of The Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, and Wendell and Wild. Still wonderful little uh, stop-motion animation. I don't think we actually need a remake of that. It's as good as it possibly could be. So yeah, that's Matilda. Uh, it's... Sublime, it's wonderful. It is uh, much needed updates, much needed adaptation, augmentation, beefing up, bulking out, and strengthening and underlining and threading through a streak of much needed rebelliousness. All kids should see this. All kids should know what being disobedient for the right reasons feels like. So I've been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's out. I was sure that I would never escape the story I had written for you. I couldn't find a way out. I couldn't see beyond the clouds that swirled around me Then one day I opened